We are in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be picking it up, uh, really focusing in uh, verses 23 through 26 again today. This is part two of the message that we started last week. I'm going to jump right into it, and I'm going to pick it up in context. Basically, let me paraphrase a few verses and then jump into where uh, we were. Um, Basically, back in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9, um, Jesus is asking his disciples, who people say that he is. And so they're answering him. Peter steps up. He's like, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus is like, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. Another gospel translation uh, records Peter saying, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, um, and so Jesus, he goes on from there and, he, and he's uh, explaining um, you know, what his mission is, what he came to do, and so on, and, and then begins to talk to the disciples about their job as well. And we pick it up now in context, and he says to them, verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels." If you were with us last week, we saw that Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, marks a transition now here in the Gospel of Luke. And here now, Peter and the disciples, they have come to the knowledge of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of the living God. But they don't yet fully understand Jesus' mission. They don't understand his cross, his resurrection, uh, his, his ascension. They don't understand that his, the point of his mission is to give his life as a ransom for many, to die uh, for sinners. And so Jesus here begins to reveal his mission to them, that he, that he has to suffer many things, that <coughs> he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders, that He's going to be killed and that he's going to rise from the dead. Um, Because the point is, before the disciples can effectively bear witness of who Jesus is, they have to really get an understanding of what he came to do, what his mission is, that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Listen, everything in Christianity hinges on that key point. We have to get that, that, that no religious system can save you. That, that no keeping a list of do's and don'ts is going to save you. That, that your good deeds can't save you. You can't help enough old ladies across the street. You can't do enough good stuff to, to outweigh your bad stuff. It doesn't work like that. That all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And it's only faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that can save us. It's, it's only His blood, His shed blood on the cross and faith in what he's completed, the completed work that he's done, that he suffered, died, was buried, that he rose again on the third day, conquering Satan and sin and death. The faith in what Christ has done is the only thing that will ever work to save us. And the Bible says that when you and I, by faith, 
When we turn to Jesus, hey, he makes us a new creation. Here's how Paul articulated it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And notice the way that that's articulated. It's talking about an ongoing sense that you're made a new creation, but then the new life begins. In other words, we're not waiting to go to heaven to start the new life with God. No, the moment you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and He he transforms you, your new life begins now. And, And Jesus says that living this new life includes following His example. That as disciples of Jesus Christ, we follow the example that he has set to, to, that we die to our sinful nature and that we, that we lay down our lives to serve others just as he laid down his life to serve us. Again, not as a means of achieving a right standing with God, but because we're new creations, this is then how we are supposed to, to live, how we are supposed to walk. We're supposed to walk in his steps and, and follow his example. Jesus said that as much to his disciples. He said to to them this in John's gospel, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Now he's talking in the context of having just washed their feet. Uh, Chronologically speaking, at this point in John's gospel, he washed their feet and basically said, look, I set you an example that you to serve others just the way I, your master, have served you. I've given you an example to follow. Do as as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, Jesus says to his disciples, God will bless you for doing them. And so Jesus now begins to elaborate to his disciples not only his mission, but but also the mission that he has given to his disciples. Now, if you're with us last week, we looked at the first part of this. Jesus articulates really four requirements to being his disciple. We don't have time to go over it, but if you missed the message, you can go online and, and, and watch that. Four requirements to being a disciple. But today, Jesus continues, and now he touches on three stumbling blocks to being a disciple. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Three stumbling blocks to being a disciple. And if you're taking notes, you can write down the first one. Here's the first stumbling block, self will. He says there in verse 24, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now that word life, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you could circle it there in verse 24. Nearby you could write this, you could write self. This is, this is a, the, the, li- the word life has to do with you, yourself, and in fact, every aspect of you, yourself. Uh, The idea here is that Jesus is saying that some people live self-focused and self-consumed lives, right? You know people like this. Live self-focused, self-consumed life. This is the guy that when you're getting on, you know, the freeway at Rancho California Road, you were just not getting in front of him, right? Self, my wife's going to give me an elbow on that later on. She's going to be like, there you are. And it is us sometimes. That's the point. Some people, Jesus is saying, live self-focused, self-consumed lives. 
Uh, Their constant motivation, Jesus says, is to save their life. And again, you could circle that word save. Next to it, you could write to keep safe and sound or to rescue from danger or destruction. That's what that word save means. And And you put that together. The idea is that anything that threatens to encroach upon their self-interests for those people that are self-centered in this way, anything that, that set, threatens to impose on their self-interests, it's resisted. You're like, oh, wait, wait, that requires dying to myself? No, I'm, that's not me. That requires a little sacrifice? No, that's not me. It's something that you resist. Anything that requires that kind of self-sacrifice is viewed as antithetical to happiness. It's like, oh, well, if I'm going to be happy, well, then that certainly doesn't include me having to, to sacrifice. This is what Jesus is talking about here. In other words, some people, rather than embracing the crucified life, well, their philosophy of, uh, of life, their focus is it's completely self-absorbed. It's about my life. It's about my time. It's about my money. And you can go first right after me. That's the attitude. And Jesus says some people live like this, and, and the thought of living the crucified life for these people, hey, it's not even a blip on the radar. Not even a blip on the radar. Now, if you were with us when we went through our value series, I told you a story. I'll tell it again briefly because um, it fits here. We're talking about the self-focused, self-consumed life. It was 2004. I went on family vacation, and we rented a houseboat. And... Um, and they will let any fool with a checkbook rent a houseboat. I'll just say that. This thing was, was just the, this very, very huge houseboat. So my wife and I, we take this out, and I got, I got my kids with me, um, and my teenage daughters. My son, he's about eight years old. He brought a little friend with him. I had my, my niece with me, um, not, not much older than my son, and, and then my teenage girls. And, and one of my, my, gals, my girls had uh, her boyfriend with him. So... We're there, and we go on this houseboat, and the wind picks up, and it hits this huge houseboat. We have, we have moored for the night, and the way, when you moor for the night, basically, you got four anchors on this thing, and you have to dig to China and throw these huge anchors down on the beach and bury them. It's like Volkswagen-sized anchors, and that holds you there, theoretically. Well, the, the wind picks up and blows, us, blows our anchors loose, and now the boat's going to threatening to crash into the rocks. So Brenda jumps in our boat, and, and she's like playing tugboat with this, with this houseboat, trying to keep it off the rocks. Meanwhile, I'm just looking for some help. So, so again, I got, I got my eight-year-old son and his friend, and then I, I've got, you know, this boyfriend of, of, of my, my daughter. And so I go to him. I'm like, hey, I need some help in here right now. Well, this kid looks at me. He's like, well, I just put on my jammies. And I'm like, fine, just stay in here with the girls then. And so me and the two eight-year-olds, we go out and start digging and putting this thing out. Now, Brenda and my contribution up until this point, we paid for the car, we paid for the gas, we paid for the boat rental, we paid for the food, we did all the driving, we covered all the logistical needs. That was our part. But Jammy Boy wasn't there to contribute, right? He was there to consume. Now, here's the thing. He's just a kid, right? He's just a kid. But, you know, here's the thing. Some people, they live their whole life with themselves as the center of their universe, right? And, and this is the way they live. And that's a problem. And it's a problem because the man who's stuck on himself has no regard for God. Man who's stuck on himself, no regard for God. 
no concept that there's an eternal world with eternal consequences, right? That They're just focused on the here and now. James was talking about this kind of guy in James chapter 4, verses 13, 14. He said this, he said, Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year, we'll do business there and make a profit. He says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. He's talking to somebody who, who's, who's just all about the here and the now, and this is what we're going to do, and so confident about never thinking that there's something more than this, something greater than this, something beyond this. You're thinking about the temporary life here, which James says is a flash in the pan. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. But you lose sight of the fact that there is something that's, that's beyond this life, and that's a lot longer than this life. And that's a lot more consequential than this life. In other words, James says, look, we live simultaneously in two worlds. And this world, it seems so urgent and it seems so vital. And it screams for our focus. But it's a vapor in the wind. And and Jesus is saying here, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Because if you focus solely on yourself and on this world, Jesus says, you're going to die. Jesus tells a parable in chapter 16 of Luke, and it goes this way. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open source. And the implication here is that this guy could care less. He could care less. Has no sympathy, no compassion, no regard for those that are in a lower state than his. <clears throat> it says, verse 22, Finally, the poor man died, was carried by the angels to be with Abraham, and the rich man also died and was buried. And his soul went to the place of the dead. And there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. And so now here, he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warm them, and so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. You see where Jesus is going with this, right? But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Now, part of the implication of Jesus' parable here is that the rich man is totally self-absorbed completely focused. My life, my time, my money, and you can go first right after me. This is, this is him, his MO. 
But this guy gave no thought whatsoever to the fact that there is an afterlife. That's the point. There's an afterlife. This earth is, is not the end. And listen, you cannot gain resurrection life without dying to this one. You can't gain, gain resurrection life without dying to this one. This is what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's talking about sowing seeds. In other words, look, you don't lose a seed when you plant it. It seems like it's dead, right? And, and when, you, when you bury it into the ground, it seems like this insignificant thing. But that's where life starts. It has to die. And then it has to be buried. And in truth, what you do when you bury that seed is you set it free to be what it was always intended to be. And this is what the Lord is saying. Look, whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, you die and you bury with Christ. Hey, that's where you're going to find life, Jesus says. And that word find, very significant. Here's what it means. It means something that you discover after searching for it high and low. Something you discover after searching for it high and low. And listen, people search high and they search low trying to find life, don't they? I was watching TV the other day, and it was, uh, it was Drugs Incorporated. That was the show. Maybe you've seen it. And they're, tra- they're following, in this particular episode, cocaine. And from the, from the jungles where it starts and the, the, the cocoa plant is growing, and they, they follow it through its production and manufacture and distribution, and they follow it all the way to its end use. And it was so sad, I'm watching the show, and there's this, this gal, she lives in this dumpy apartment in Hollywood, and all she lives for is getting her high on cocaine and going out clubbing. And here she's all happy in, in the video, and oh, this is great, <clears throat> thinks her life is all of that. I find it very interesting that the very, at the very beginning, she's all alone, and she goes out clubbing all alone, and she comes home all alone, and I'm thinking, she hasn't gotten the memo yet. This is not where you find life. Some of you have gotten that memo. Some of you lived that life. Some of you came to the end of what promised to be life and you realized you were sold a bill of goods, that this is, this is not life. You ripped off. You think of the woman at the well. It's exactly her story. She thought she'd find life in relationship with a man. Jesus is there and he finds her in the hot of the day. There she, she's coming down to, to, to get you know, a drink at the well in the hot of the day. She's a Samaritan woman and, and clearly she's even ostracized from her own people because she, she can't come down when everybody else comes down in the cool of the morning. She comes out, has to come down to get her water in the blazing hot in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. Why? Well, because she's got a bad reputation even among all of these, these people that she's living who themselves are, are not with God. <clears throat> and Jesus finds her there and he's like, hey, how about if I give you some water that you'll never thirst again? She's like, yeah, I'll take some of that. Well, go get your husband. Well, I have no husband. Yeah, that's right. You have no husband. You've been married five times. The dude you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband, right? <clears throat> and she's like, oh, you're a prophet. Wow, this is, come meet a man who told me everything there is to know about my life. Well, he didn't tell her everything about her life. He just told her the bullseye of what her life was all about. You're looking for life in relationship with men. <clears throat> and see, Jesus is saying, man, 
you're going to, you, when you lose your life for my sake, that's when you're going to find it. This thing that you've been searching for high and low, it comes when, 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 you, when you die to yourself for the sake of the Lord and you live for Christ. That's where, that's where you find, that's where you find this. Jesus says here, you lose, you find your life when you lose your life for my sake. Question, by the way, at this point, maybe some of you want to take a walk with this way or this week. Is, you know, what do you got to lose? You know, what what is it that that you that you have to you've been looking for life in, and it, it just ain't there. And maybe even now, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, just just putting the exclamation point on something you already know to be true. There's no life in this. No life. Life is found when I'm going to lose my life and faith in God and surrender completely to Him and just bury this thing. And and and, and th- this is what I'm going to going to look for. And so the first stumbling block to being a disciple is this: it's this self will. It's this this self centered attitude. Well, now in verse 25, I want you to notice the second thing Jesus speaks of, the second stumbling block to being a disciple. It's our stuff. It's our stuff. He says, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? That word gain, it means to acquire or to amass for yourself. Webster's Dictionary defines that word gain this way, to get something you desire, especially as a result of effort. Here's the problem. Jesus says, apart from God, that the things you work so hard to acquire and the things that you think are going to satisfy your desires, apart from God, they don't lead to profit, they lead to ruin. That word profit that he uses is very helpful. It means to be useful, to provide an advantage. And what Jesus is saying is that not everything that you and I count as useful and as being advantageous are in fact useful or advantageous to our lives. That's what the Lord is saying. Now, let me illustrate this point with a documentary I used to watch when I was a kid. It was one of those, you know... Uh, National Geographic type, doc, doc, type documentaries. And it was How to Catch a Monkey. Now, now this, this has since been used in all kinds of self-help kind of talks. You've probably heard the illustration and they use, you know, different things. But, but I saw this years ago when I was just a kid. As a matter of fact, I found it on YouTube this week. So I know it's still out there. And I watched it. It was old home week. I watched it. Oh, I remember watching that when I was a kid. Anyway, How to Catch a Monkey. You've got this guy, this tribesman, and he's looking to catch this monkey. And he goes to an anthill, he takes a stick, and he digs a hole out in this, this anthill, right? And, and as he digs the hole out, uh, then the, I don't know how far back into this anthill he goes, but then he takes another stick and he, and he sort of widens out the hole. And, and then, and all the while, this monkey's watching him because the monkey's curious, wants to see what he's doing. And so then he takes these seeds or whatever it is, I think it's seeds, and he, and he, and he, and he, get, he throws them in the hole so that they're down inside this, this hollowed out section at the end of the hole. Well, then, then he leaves and he goes and be, hides behind a tree. Now, you know, the monkey doesn't trust the man, you know, at all, but, he, but he, he cannot help being overcome by his curiosity and he wants the seeds. 
So he goes finally and he makes his way in there and, and he reaches his hand into this hole and he grabs a hold of the seeds. Now, at this moment, that's when the guy who wants to catch the, mom, the monkey comes walking out. And he's in no particular hurry. He just strolls up. Now, the monkey is losing his mind as the man is getting closer because he doesn't want to get caught. But he doesn't have the good sense to let go of the seeds that he has grabbed. And so with his fist closed around the seeds, he can't pull his arm back out through the hole. And lo and behold, the, the guy then says, gotcha. And he's, he's now caught the monkey. And so here's the point. The monkey gained the food, but it didn't profit him. That's the whole moral of the story. And here's the question we all need to ask. We have to ask, what do we value as profitable gain that is in fact not profitable gain? Jesus says, what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Again, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 12. And in this parable, he said this. He said, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, Well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, Well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns, uh, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is going to be demanded from you. And who's going to get that which <clears throat> you have prepared for yourself? And This is how it will be, Jesus says, with everyone or whoever stores up things for themselves but not, is not rich towards God. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this parable I just shared with you. First of all, the man is already rich. That's how the parable starts. He's a certain rich man. He's already rich. And, and he's already got his barns filled to capacity. See, that's not his problem. Having money isn't this guy's problem. And Jesus isn't even taking issue with this guy having money. Some people say, well, you know, money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. So, so you got a rich guy. That's not a problem. Um, what is the problem is that he loves money more than God. Now, how can we say that authoritatively? Well, we can say that by the solution that he comes up with. Because what happens is he says, well, I've got all this stuff and now I got more stuff and what do I do with this more stuff? Well, I need to build bigger barns for more stuff that I can lay up for myself. He's entirely self-focused. See, what this solution that he comes up with shows us, and this is Jesus' point, is that this guy has no regard for his neighbor. And, and see, in this day and age of Jesus's you know, telling this parable, just as in ours, you, you've got many needy people. You've got many poor people. And this guy's already got more than enough than he needs for himself and for his family. Here now, he's got the, the opportunity to honor God with his possessions by fulfilling the second requirement of the law, to, to, to love his neighbor as himself. But rather than having that mindset, you know, he, 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 he doesn't have a picture of the larger perspective. He doesn't see things from the fact of, hey, I live now and there is a life to come and 
I'm a steward in this life, and, and I recognize that, that my time and my talent and my treasures have all give, been given to me to bring glory and honor to God. Yes, God wants to take care of me and provide for me, but what God wants most from my life, my time, my talent, my treasures, is that I would glorify God, that I would honor God. That's what God wants from you and, and me as his children, as his disciples, that we would glorify God with everything that belongs to us, that we would understand, hey, listen, this isn't about me focusing on me. God doesn't bless me so that I'm just all about me. He, he wants me to have a larger perspective. He wants me to see things from an eternal perspective. This is, this is what the, the Lord wants for us, to honor him with our possessions. And, and so this, this, this is a problem here. Jesus is saying, look, your stuff, it can trip you up as a disciple. You could gain the whole world. What's it matter? You forfeit your soul. Your stuff can really cause you a lot of problems. And, and it really gives you a glimpse of what's going on inside your heart. Where, where am I at? What, what, is, what is God doing? And, and, and it's healthy just to take a walk with, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your talent? What are you doing with your treasure? Is, it just, is your only consideration about you and your bottom line and what's best for your family? Or will you allow God to expand your horizons and recognize, hey, you know what, as his disciple, I need to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I need to love others as myself. I need to fulfill the, 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 this, this, the second law. Jesus said, you know, he was asked, what's the most important commandment in all the, the, the law? And he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, if, and if we're like this guy, we got no consideration. Man, am I in danger, Lord, of being, hey, I gained the whole world, but I forfeit my soul. That, I, that, I, that I'm fixated on, on these, this, this unhealthy way. By the way, Jesus had this same temptation. Remember in the wilderness in, in Luke chapter 4. Satan offered him everything. He's like, oh, look at all. I'll give you all this stuff. <clears throat> and Jesus chose life and victory in obedience rather than gratifying the, the desires of the flesh. Something Satan didn't do. Satan was like, oh, I'll take all that. So he gives the same temptation to the Lord. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, appealing to it all. And no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to forsake that. So the first stumbling block to being a disciple is our selfish desires. The second stumbling block is our stuff. And that brings us to the third stumbling block that Jesus talks about. Third stumbling block being a disciple, shame. Shame. Notice in verse 26, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, <clears throat> the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. <clears throat> Shame being this stumbling block to being a disciple of Christ. You know, it's been said, you can tell a lot about a society by what it considers shameful and conversely what it glorifies. What, what, is, what does a society consider shameful and what does a society glorify? Think about it. Some things that the world, in the world today, that, that were once scandalous. Some things that, that the, the world just thought, wow, that's shameful. Well, now they're openly admired in our generation, in our world in which we live in, in our nation. 
Some things that were shameful and scandalous, they're now admired. They're now celebrated. So others that were once accepted as being virtuous, man, today they're now criticized and they're condemned, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, look, don't mix, don't mix that up. Don't mix it up. Jesus is saying, you, you can't be ashamed of me. You can't be ashamed of my words. Because what's going to happen is if you have that shame of me and of my words, man, when, when I come, and he's talking about his second coming, he, here, this is his first coming. He came as a suffering servant to give his life as a ransom for many, to suffer, to die, to give you the opportunity to, to by faith, place your, host in, your hope in him and, and have his vicarious death and burial and resurrection be that which takes away your sins. That's his first coming. Second coming, Jesus coming back as a conquering king. And he says, look, I'm coming back. And when I come back, if you have been ashamed of me and my words, well, listen, I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come back. See, the thing is, is that Jesus is saying here, don't mix it up. It all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to his word. And at the end of the day, listen, you and I have to take a stand. We have to take a stand. We have to decide, am I going to live my life according to the compass of Jesus' word, or am I going to be ashamed of that? See, the, I like what Bruce Barton said, this quote. He says, believers must stand boldly for the Lord because we live in a world that increasingly stands for nothing. And what happens is, Jesus said that, he's telling his disciples, look, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world, he tells his disciples. He says, I chose you out of the world, and so the world hates you. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you will be hated, you will be vilified. You will face extreme pressure from the world to be ashamed of Jesus. Maybe you've already encountered it. People will call you narrow-minded. They will call you homophobic. They will call you intolerant. And there will be this pressure that you will face in the world to be ashamed of Jesus and of his his words. Here's what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the the stumbling block that Christians face is that we knuckle under and we become ashamed of the narrow road that we've been called to of, and, and we become ashamed of, of the, the person and the name and the work of Jesus, we won't articulate it because we're afraid of what people are going to say. Listen to what Peter the Apostle said in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake if, of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He says, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed. In other words, if somebody's, you know, if, if somebody's reproaching you for the name of Jesus Christ, he says, well, that's on them. On their part, they're blaspheming God. But on your part, you're glorifying God by taking a stand for God. 
But, he says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. What Peter is saying is this. He's saying, look, if people are going to revile you and if people are going to persecute you for righteousness, hey, praise Jesus. That's great. Now, if on the other hand, they revile and persecute you because they got something to say against you and you have to take a good long look in the mirror and go, wow, I'm guilty as charged. Like, you know, that guy's calling me a hypocrite and it's because I am a hypocrite. I'm praising Jesus with my mouth and I'm not, it's not reflected in, my, in the way I'm living out my life. Well, then you need to receive that and you need to repent and just take that as, let, turn your critics into coaches and go, man, that was, that was something I, sh- I should not be doing. So he says, don't, you know, don't, don't suffer for, for being a, a sinner, but hey, do rejoice if, if you're being unjustly, uh, you know, condemned for, uh, for reviled for faith in Jesus. Verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and here's the summary, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, Jesus is saying here in Luke 9, look, don't focus on the world. Focus on the kingdom of God. Don't focus on the world. Focus on the kingdom of God. Don't let fear of what people think of you. Don't let fear of what people say about you. Don't let fear of being socially shunned or a fear of being, review, being, being reviled as being narrow-minded. Hey, don't let any of that cause you to be ashamed of God because Jesus says, look, a day is coming when he's going to judge this world and everyone in it. That's what he says there in verse, in verse 26. He says, look, don't be ashamed of me or I'm going to be ashamed of you, if I can paraphrase it, when when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. He's talking about his second coming. Look, a day is coming when I'm going to judge the living and the dead. And if you've been ashamed of me when I judge, I'm going to be ashamed of you. We need to keep that, that focus in mind. That there is a world today and that there, there, is, there is an afterlife. And we need to be prepared for it. Don't focus on the world, Jesus is saying. Focus on the kingdom of God. And listen, keep in mind, the day of judgment is coming. I close with this. Peter said, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Man, How are we going to walk as disciples?